folks. Uh, if you're a student, you're dismissed. Welcome to Christ Community Church. I greet you in the name of my Savior. I'm very glad y'all are here today. Um, Christopher, every morning, probably way before you even get up, uh, one of the things that I pray <laughs> for uh, each one of y'all, I try to pray it by for it for I try to pray it for you by name, is that God would open up the eyes of our hearts. That's what David prayed, that God would open the eyes of his heart. And I was just singing that. Um, and I was thinking about us last week, Shirley and I were with our grandson in the mountains, in the Smoky Mountains, and we did a lot of hiking. Not quite as long distance hiking as you and I normally do when he's not with us. But a lot of lo rock throwing. A lot of rock throwing and s rock sliding and <laughs> creek playing and uh, we had a great time. We didn't log in quite as many miles. No, yeah. no, we did not. But that's okay. Uh, we had a great time and one of the things when you're hiking trails in the mountains, if you've ever done that, uh, you know, you're going along and you really can't see anything but the trees, uh, which are pretty. You know, they're lovely and refreshing and life-giving. But every once in a while, you'll come to a point on the trail and it'll open up. And when it opens up, then you can see these mountains. And it's not that the mountains just appeared. They'd been there all along. But the trees and the leaves kept you from seeing them. And then when you saw them, I don't know, just that those mountains had been there for thousands of years. And um, come what may, they're there. And the strength and the majesty and the glory and the beauty of how God made them. And um, I don't know, I was just thinking about that as we were singing. God, would you remove all the leaves and the trees so that we could, we could see you for who you really are uh, today? That was... That's what I was thinking about while we were singing. That's what I try to, one of the things that I pray for y'all, try to on a daily basis, that God will give us hearts that seek after you, hearts with eyes that are open, hearts that are united with you in fear, hearts that are satisfied in you. Those are some of the things that I pray for us every day that God will do in our hearts. Um, yeah. Um, Hello. Hello. Glad you're here. Nice to be here. Hooray. Um, Shirley and I were talking about the lesson this week, and um, I asked her, I said, I already knew the answer, what's one of your favorite books that you teach? And you said? The, the Brothers Karamazov. And, I uh, love that book. Of course you do. And um, I've never read it, but... She teaches it. Well, it is a with commitment. Great it's, it's, vigor and it's a commitment. That, yes. And um, uh, I, I asked her the question. I said, tell me what it would look like if Busy was sitting in, I didn't use your name at the time that I said this, but if Could Busy have. was sitting in front of you in the classroom with your other fellow students and you were trying to teach brothers, but all they had read all that they knew about, all that they were aware of, was the last 30%, 33% of the book, the last third. 
What would that look like? How would that go? What would that mean if that's all they had was the last third of the book? Yeah, so in that particular book, or really, it's true of any book, but what, you, what one would miss by just reading the end of a novel would be uh, everything, really, but <laughs> characterization for sure, like how these people got to the decisions they're making at the end. So you, you wouldn't know the, the characters given in the beginning, for the most part, you know, what, what kind of person this is, what they look like, how they respond to things. So characterization would be minimal. Uh, you'd be making a lot of assumptions at the end mm. without knowing any of the backstory. That's a good point. Um, and, that, and many of those assumptions might not necessarily be accurate or reasonable oh, or healthy right. or good. Well, in this yeah. particular good. book, The Brothers Karamazov, there's a murder, and there, there are brothers. There's four, <laughs> there are four of them. And you don't know, again, like, it's a, a bit of a mystery. You don't know until the very end who actually who actually commits this murder. But everybody's got motive. And so, but if you don't know what the motive was, if you don't know what the hurts were, if you don't know what the pains were, then everybody seems, at the end of this book anyway, everybody seems guilty. Everyone seems guilty. No one seems innocent. That's the way it's written. So you've got to know the backstory. Um, you also don't know, in this particular book, the father is horrible. He is a horrible guy. He's done everything wrong. He's cruel to his children. He's cruel to his sons. And so there's motive. But by the time the last third of the book occurs, he's gotten super old. And so you don't know what he did. You wouldn't, if you just read the end, if you just read the end, you would think that the brothers were, were cruel murders, murderers. And they're not that at all. But you wouldn't have known it right. because you, you wouldn't have right. known any of their um, character and you wouldn't have known how bad the father really was. Not that he deserves to be killed. That's not the point of the book. Um, you wouldn't know the time frame. You wouldn't know where it's set. Yeah. So what I heard you say was that without knowing the first two-thirds, best case scenario is that you're going to get a very small understanding of the whole point of the book mm -hmm. and what the author was trying to convey mm -hmm. and you're going to draw a lot of or make a lot of assumptions you have to make a lot of assumptions that many of which probably are wrong yes okay i want you to think about that just for a second and um, i contend that would be true of any well-written novel sure sure not something goofy but yeah yeah okay um some of y'all in this room, not, not many, but uh, some of you have come to see me for uh, premarital counseling. And uh, that's one of the joys of my life is spending time with couples, getting them ready to get married. And there's some couples in here, I'm sort of waiting on them to come and see me uh, so they can go on and get married. They need to go on and get hitched. And uh, that, that, that's the truth. Uh, and so I'm waiting on them. And when they come, one of the things that they're gonna, um, we're going to do is that we're going to spend time, um, in fact, we'll spend a lot of time, maybe even the majority of our time, looking at the family backgrounds that they were reared in their parents, their homes, uh, their family values and traditions and problems and failures and wounds. And sometimes couples will look at me, they're like, well, 
That's the past. You know, what is, what, that, that's, that, what we want to know is, is what do we need to do right now so that we can have a happy marriage and move forward? But the truth is that unless, that is an impossible feat in my opinion. Now some of you would challenge me on that and that's okay. But I would suggest that it is impossible to create something great for the future without having a very strong understanding of what led to the present. And most of you, uh, especially those of you that are married, you, if you've been married any length of time, you'd go, yeah, yeah, because your past, you bring it with you, right? It, it comes with you, win, lose, or draw, uh, like it or not, it's, it's, it comes with you and it, and it impacts in a, such a profound way how we see each other, how we communicate, how we respond to wounds and, you know, getting our way or laying down our rights. You, you, you understand we all this. We have to be uh, honest about and cognizant of family of origin. How did I grow up? Yeah. That is who I am. Okay, yeah. Yeah. fine. Yeah, In order I, to go forward. Well, just, well. just a little example would be the, the, the way you, the family you grew up in with your money. You grew up in a family where money was scarce. That has a big impact upon you. No matter how much money you now have, that impacts you. Or if you had an abundance of money growing up, that affects you. And again, I'm not saying these things are deal breakers or bad or good. They just are. Um, if you grew up in a family where things were always, never had a bill that, wasn't, that was not paid, or you grew up in a family where there were times when the lights were shut off. That affects you. Um, if every month, the first week of every month, everybody in your family got nervous because you knew that's when all the bills were coming in and dad was going to be mad and stressed, uh, then everybody sort of hid until that week went by and then things got better. You know, that affects you. Our past, our origin, our heritage, that, that affects how we see and respond and deal with the present and the future. And so that's sort of what I want to talk, or we want to talk to you about today. Um, some of you won't really identify with this very much, but some of you will. In my world of religion, biblical studies, theology, it is very popular today, very popular, to emphasize the teachings of Jesus and de-emphasize really the rest of the New Testament. What matters is what Jesus said. What Paul and John and Peter said, James, that's not unimportant, but it's not near as important. Turn it up a thousand degrees and you get today this message that the New Testament 
is vastly more important than the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is less than the New Testament. That the epistles are less than the Gospels. And really the message that I would love for y'all to leave here today with, the challenge that I would want Larry, you and John, Mike, to go home with, is, is that true? Is the Old Testament, Old Covenant, is that less important, significant, than the New Covenant? Is, is what really matters. We're going to just cut to the chase. What's the point? Give me the cliff notes. I want to know what, what's the main deal. Number one, that's not the way you can study great literature, right? You can't, you what, can't, cliff notes? well, just jump, you know, cut right to the chase. Uh, what's the main point? Tell me the, the thing, tell me what's going to be on the, if you do it that way, you just miss the, 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 the beauty and the glory and the wonder of, of what's been created, well, if you're right? Gonna read a, if you're going to read a book like that, you might as well just some, get someone to make a list. Right. There are four boys. They're mad. One of them kills the dad. One of them goes to prison. That's wow. the end. You know, it's wow. just a... Wow, wow, that's... One of them steps up for the other. And how many of us see it. the Christian life that way? Tell me what I need to do to go to heaven, to get God off my back, to get God to throw me a couple of bones every week. Tell me, just cut to the chase. Do I need to pray a prayer, get baptized, sign a card, give some money, help an old woman across the street? What is, what is it that I need? How often do we develop that attitude rather than saying that the entire Bible really is a story or a letter or a, a document I'm not sure the right word to use that God chose 40 some odd people to write down so that we could get to know him and experience who he is and grasp what he's about and how he is wanting to relate to us and how he wants us to relate to him. I'm not suggesting that any serious student of the Bible, some of which are in this room, any serious student of the Bible would acknowledge that there are parts of the Bible that are more significant than other parts. Clearly the colors of the curtains in the tabernacle are not as important as John 3.16 or Romans 3 or 5 or 12 for that matter. Uh, 
I'm not suggesting that there aren't parts of the Bible that are more significant than others. There are parts of the New Testament that are more significant than others. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, What God gave to me, I have now given to you. As of first importance, Christ died for our sins. And he was buried and, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, maybe a little more, he's saying there are parts of the New Testament that message, the, the, there are parts of the New Testament message that are m more important than other parts. And you better get the most important parts straight. And the gospel the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel message, is the most important thing. And we need to understand that. But I would just suggest that unless you and I come to a place where we understand that almost every story that Jesus told Every event that Jesus participated in, every relationship that Jesus was involved in, every moment, I'm trying not to be bombastic, I'm trying to be straight with y'all, every moment of Jesus' life was either directly or indirectly related to something that took place in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't just parachute in, uh, uh, or what do you call it, sky, you know where you do that, parasailing. Jesus didn't just parasail into Israel from heaven and say, here I am, um, uh, I'm dying on the cross for y'all. Believe in me. Bye. You can't isolate his life like that. It, 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 he came as the fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies and declarations and metaphors and symbols and pictures he came to fulfill all these things and to represent all these things and to explain all these things. And so I just, I want us to see that uh, the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus point directly or indirectly to hundreds and thousands of Old Testament verses, Old Testament statements, Old Testament people, Old Testament events and to try to understand the life of Jesus apart from a growing effort to understand those that Old Testament background Jesus life is nonsensical in fact I love the way you, say, you will draw conclusions about the life of Jesus you will draw conclusions about 
the priorities of Jesus, we, we, not you, we will draw conclusions that are wrong if we don't understand the significance of discovering not just who the Jesus is in the Gospels, but the Jesus that was foretold and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And back to characterization, the character of God in the Old Testament is important. And the character of the prophets and the, and the people that were used of God um, in order to understand any kind of prophecy that Jesus might fulfill. Because it's, if you've read it at all, it's not simple. It's not, it's enigmatic. It's mysterious. It's supposed to be. Yes. If God is anything, God is mysterious. Uh, so yes. if we miss the character of God in the Old Testament, then when Jesus starts saying some of these things in the New Testament, we don't understand, we can't understand that. Yes. Case in point. Jesus goes into the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry when he's 30 and once at the end of his ministry when he's 33. And he does something very odd if, if you're not careful. He goes into the temple and grabs some ropes or something and starts driving all these people out of the temple. Seems pretty intense and un-Jesus-like. You could suggest he was mad very upset and he drives everybody out, tumps over all these tables and animals are running around and you know it just it, you're like what's what's that 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 doesn't seem right unless you've read specifically several times and it, uh, 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 generally. generally numerous times in the old testament that god asked Solomon to build the temple as a place for the people of the nations of the world to come and learn about him and worship him and find forgiveness in him and a relationship with him. That's why Solomon, why God asked Solomon to build the temple so that it could be a, a house of prayer for the nations. And what wound up happening when Jesus uh, arrives on the scene is that it become a money-making business kind of a thing and literally to the point that the people of the nations couldn't even get in. They, weren't, no, they couldn't get in if they wanted to and they, and because they weren't, there was no room and if they could get in, if they could find a little spot to stand on, they weren't welcome. You're not a Jewish person. You're not welcome in here. And Jesus, who, in my theology, was the one that told Solomon to do it. He says, oh my gosh, that's who I built it for. That's, I, that's who I built it for. What's for that uh, uh, Ethiopian man or that uh, Chinese lady or that uh, whatever, whatever person. Yeah, yeah, but do you see what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's why Jesus got upset. Because they weren't using his dad's house the way he had told them to use it. So, um, I just felt like all week long, God wanted me to, or wanted us to challenge each other to really reevaluate how we see and value the Old Testament.
I've gotten, I've had, I've been, I've had a very blessed life. And I've had more gifts given to me than should have. But the greatest physical gift, not, not people gift, physical gift that I was ever given in my life, and I've had some great ones. I've had, I mean, I, when I was given, when I was six years old, I was given a 410 shotgun. Buddy, let me tell you something, that's great. When I was 14, or 12, maybe 12, I was given a horse. Uh, I just uh, anyway, just gift after gift after gift. I mean, great ones, not just crummy ones. I mean, great ones. And um, but the greatest gift that I was ever given in my life, I got saved when I was uh, 18 years old. Literally, right right at the time of my birthday. And in January of that year, they had come. They came out with a Bible that many of you I've given a copy to, and if you don't have one and want one, I'll give you one. If you just text me, I'll, I'll give you one. It's called a one-year Bible. And uh, somebody loved me enough, said, here, take this one-year Bible, and you need to read it every day. Well, I didn't know any better, and I said, okay. And I started reading it every day, and literally that was 42 years ago. I had missed a day. I read, it has a little, you know, every day's got a page, you know, and in that, and so it's laid out so that you, even I can follow the plan. Read the date, doesn't matter when you start, just start that date. Today's the 10th, is today the 10th, I think, of October? Uh, just start on October, the, I read October 10th today. Shocking for many of you to, to know, but I read October 10th today. And I've read October 10th, every October 10th for 42 years. But that's only part of the gift. The other part of the gift is, is that on every day, you read a little bit of Psalms, a little bit of Proverbs, a little bit of the New Testament, and a little bit of the Old Testament. In 42 years, I've never not read the Old Testament. You might think, well, what? what's that a big deal? It's a big deal because I have been given the privilege of understanding and benefiting the New Testament in light of being exposed regularly to the Old Testament. They fit together. It's one narrative. It's one story. And so I just would appeal to us to consider how do we value and prioritize our exposure and our nourishment in the Old Testament? Uh, because it does grieve me. Um, it grieves me to think about how many of us. Sure, we've heard of Abraham and David and Samson and Goliath. You know, maybe Noah. But other than those headliners, we don't, we don't, we don't know these stories and these truths and these events. And because we don't, it, it causes us to draw flawed assumptions about the the people in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, and the Savior of the New Testament. And um, 
So my question for us today is how do we view and value the Old Testament? Um, you know, if you study the life of Jesus, those contemporaries that Jesus, he was, he was called a Pharisee. Jesus was a Pharisee. Uh, uh, that, that would have, the, the people around him would have placed him in that group. And like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, Jesus would have agreed with them that the, the Old Testament, that was the scriptures that was available, uh, that it was divinely inspired, written by, by God. God's Spirit fell upon certain people, and uh, 30 of them, give or take, uh, yeah, uh, and wrote the Old Testament through these 30 some odd individuals. Jesus would have agreed with the, these. Pharisees and religious leaders that the Bible was the Old Testament was true that it was trustworthy and that it was authoritative to live your life by the Pharisees taught those things and Jesus also taught those things and agreed with those things unlike the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of Jesus' day Jesus would have disagreed with them on a new a number of points Jesus would have disagreed with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees of his day that Israel possessed some kind of moral and spiritual superiority. They, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, would have seen themselves as superior to the other peoples of the world and the other religions of the world. And Jesus would say, wrong. There is nothing superior about you. Nothing superior. There's nothing better about you. He would have disagreed with that. He would have disagreed with them passionately and did that what mattered was your image. As long as your outside looked good, you went the right places, avoided the wrong places. Didn't eat the wrong things, ate the right things, wore the right things, avoided the wrong clothes. As long your outward person was more important than your inner person, your heart. That's what they taught. Just look good. Make sure your behavior is right. Your heart doesn't matter. Jesus would passionately disagree with that. Jesus would disagree passionately with the religious leaders of his day that Israel had done a good job of earning God's favor. God owes me. I've offered sacrifices. I've lived by the law. I've done good deeds. Blah, 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 blah. God owes me his favor. I've earned God's favor. Jesus would say, you have not earned God's favor. In fact, there's a deficit. There's a deficit here. Jesus would disagree with the religious leaders that they had done a good job of fulfilling God's direction to Abraham, their father, which was, I have called you to be a blessing to the nations. Um, they had not done a good job of that, nor had they revealed God to the nations. In fact, Jeremiah says, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will punish all the nations on the earth who are circumcised only in the flesh, and this includes Israel. 
Yes, Jesus did value certain parts of the Old Testament, as I said earlier, more than others. He says in Matthew 23, you hypocrites, you, you even tithe your spices, yet you neglect the more important matters of God's law, which includes justice, mercy, and faith. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? You, it's a good thing. In fact, he goes on to say in that very passage, you should tithe. That's a good thing. God, you, uh, God told uh, y'all through Moses that you should tithe. I'm not telling you not to tithe. But that's not the most important thing. I want you to live lives of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I want to just challenge us to consider that when Jesus spoke of events in the Old Testament, He spoke of them as if they were true and historically accurate. He spoke of Adam and Eve, Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses, David, Jonah, Elijah, and Elisha, among many, many others. And when He spoke of these people, he spoke of them as if they were historical people. Like you and I would speak of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Ronald Reagan. We're, we're speaking of people that we believe to be historical figures. And I'm going to read a few of them. I could give you several dozen. Let me just give you a couple. Luke 11, Jesus says, From the blood of Abel, that was the brother of Esau, and oh, uh, well, Cain, sorry, sorry, yeah, Cain. Uh, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed in the temple. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Matthew 24, Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of God's Son. For in the days before the flood, people were busy living life up till the day that Noah went into the ark and they had no idea that a flood was coming. That's how it will be when the Son of Man returns. See, Jesus isn't saying, mm, you know, let's come up with an imaginary person. He's speaking about these people as if they're real. Jesus says in Luke 24, you're so foolish and slow to believe all that the prophets declared about the Messiah and all of his sufferings and future glory. Then Jesus began with Moses and all of the prophets and explained to them all of the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus said in John 5, You study the scriptures diligently, for you believe therein they contain eternal life. But these very scriptures, were the scriptures Jesus is talking about? The Old Testament. That's all they had. These very Old Testament scriptures testify of me. Yet you refuse to come to me for eternal life. And lastly, just my last example in Luke 16. This is a great one. Jesus said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets they will not listen and be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Did you hear what Jesus just said? People 
that don't fill their minds and hearts with an understanding of the words of Moses and the words of the prophets. If you won't listen to Moses and the prophets, you won't listen or be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. My, my challenge is, could it be that one of the reasons that I struggle believing in the miraculous life of Jesus? Did he really do those miracles? Did he really, was his death really sufficient on the cross? Did he really rise from the grave? Could it be that Jesus is suggesting one of the reasons that we struggle to believe the miraculous life of Jesus is because we have neglected to fill our hearts and minds with a study of Moses and the prophets. Peter and Paul believed exactly what the Lord Jesus said. Acts chapter 2, Peter said this, I tell you with confidence, David died and was buried, and his tomb is with us here today. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised to put one of his descendants on the throne. David saw what was coming to pass, and he spoke of the Messiah's resurrection, that God would not abandon the Lord Jesus to Hades, nor let his body decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Do you see how Peter just spoke as if the, the, the life and the words of David what, what was David talking about? What was David's focus? This coming Messiah. And I've got, I could give you, in Acts chapter 10, Peter said this, The Old Testament prophets all declare that all who believe in Jesus receive forgiveness for their sins. The Apostle Paul, Romans 15, Paul says, Everything written in the past was written to us so that through the Scriptures, we might experience endurance, encouragement, and hope. For I tell you the truth, Christ became a servant to the Jews to fulfill God's promise to the patriarchs, and so that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the fact that our ancestors were all baptized under the cloud and passed through the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all, ate, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them in the desert. And that rock was Christ. What is Paul and Peter saying? They're saying that we will never understand the life or the message of the Lord Jesus unless we see it through the lens of the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament, there's so many great things that the Old Testament conveys and, and presents and that we can benefit from that, are, that we won't at least not on the same level, we will not uh, in the New Testament. By example, 
One of the benefits of reading the Old Testament is that it's so dead gum honest. The New Testament, there you, you can tell, I'm not saying the New Testament isn't honest, but they're careful. They're careful with the life of Paul and Peter and John. In the Old Testament, take the gloves off. Man, there's such honest descriptions of the lives of Moses, of Noah, of David, of the prophets. There's, there's, a, there's just this brutal honesty related to the biographies of the writers, the leaders, and the people of God. I was thinking, you know, I don't know whether you know this or not, but about a, there's a few little bits of poetry in the New Testament, but not much. It's very, very uh, sparse. But a third of the Old Testament is poetry. And uh, wh why, do you, why do you think that, oh, teacher of poetry? Uh, yeah, why? why? What do you think significant about the fact that a third of the Old Testament was written by God using poetry? So, the opposite of poetry is prose. Prose is wonderful and useful, and it's narrative. So it tells the story, right? It's, it's even more, it's cognitive even. There's a narrative arc in every story. We've got a beginning, middle, and end. Someone turns, there's a climax. It goes well, it goes ill, and, and, and then it concludes. So that's, that's important in prose. That's really what prose is. Um, poetry, on the other hand, is of the heart. Mm -hmm. more than of the cognition. So, um, and we have, we have lovers of poetry and writers of poetry among us. Mm -hmm. So I think of songwriters. These guys who are writing songs among us, these, these young songwriters. Um, we love poetry because we sing it all the time. Sometimes it sounds like Willie Nelson, sometimes it sounds like, uh, you know, somebody else, Dolly Parton. You can tell we're just up in East Tennessee, can't you? But, but we love that because it speaks to our heart. We remember it. These, these songs that these guys mm -hmm. sing, it's poetry. It's not just mm -hmm. because it rhymes, but because it's, it's not narrative. Mm -hmm. It's concise and precise, and the words are precise, very hard to write. Um, and each word has so much, it's, it, it conveys so many different ideas yeah. and meanings and that, it's more that narrative can't. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. the Lord is my, we know this one, the Lord is my shepherd. Doesn't do it, we don't have to break it down and say, well, no, that's a metaphor, it's not a real shepherd, you know, it doesn't have a, you don't have to do that. A little kid will get it. The Lord is my shepherd. Mm. I, don't, I don't need anything. I, I, I shall not want. Yeah. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He yeah. leads me. Communicates so, images. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so we know it and we remember yeah. it. It brings us comfort in a unique way. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the Old Testament teaches us about the first person of the Trinity. The New Testament very rarely even mentions the first person of the Trinity. Yahweh, the, the Father. The Old Testament, I meant the New Testament addresses the Father. But it's, he is mentioned very rarely. If we're going to understand who the Father is, who Yahweh is, who the first person of the Trinity is, you have to read the Old Testament or you won't understand who that is. 
the old, the old Testament, if it teaches anything, it teaches that a journey with God is not just a personal matter. Yes, it's a personal matter. Jesus said through Jeremiah and through Isaiah and through Moses that God wanted to write his word on, on our hearts. But, he, but the very same passages say that it needs to be written on our foreheads and on our wrist and on our doorpost and on our gates as well. A journey with God is not just a personal matter. It is a community event. It's a community journey. And if you don't read the Old Testament, you can almost think it's just me and Jesus walking through life together. And the whole Old Testament's going, no, it's not just you and Jesus. You're traveling with a great crowd of witnesses. And either you're all going to get there together or you're not going to get there. That's the message of the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament... I can, I can summarize the Old Testament for you in one sentence. If you're one, you know, what is the, what's the, what, cut to the chase, Larry. What does the Old Testament say? I can tell you in one sentence what the Old Testament says. God made a promise to two men, Abraham and David. And he fulfilled those two promises when Jesus arrived. God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to David. And he fulfilled those two promises when he sent his son to this earth. I'm not going to belabor this. I, either the Spirit of God will show us the value and the importance and the glory and the life of studying the first two-thirds of his word only God can show us that. Only God can put that desire in our hearts. Only God can show us. I'll never understand the last third. And I sure won't understand the, the star of the last third. The Lord Jesus himself. Unless I make it my life journey. To begin to slowly, daily study the first two-thirds of the Bible. And as I grow in my awareness and understanding of what it says, that will impact profoundly my understanding of who the Son of God is and what a journey with Him looks like. Thank you. Thank you. I, that's, uh, <sighs> Jesus believed everything in the Old Testament. And he believed that everything written in the Old Testament was really pointing to him. And he, he knew the Old Testament. He wrote it. <laughs> uh, he, but he knew the Old Testament. He studied the Old Testament. He used the Old Testament to convey his messages. And he wants us to value the Old Testament and learn the Old Testament like he did. And I hope y'all will think about that in your future journey with him and his word. Um, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Speaking of the Old Testament, God creates the world and then God creates man. Very first thing man does is they're presented with an opportunity. There's a tree in front of them. And they're faced with a choice. 
either I am going to cling to my right to be the boss of my life or I'm going to lay that right down. I can either lay that right down and let somebody else be the boss of my life or I can cling to that right to be the boss of my life. They didn't make a good choice, Adam or Eve. They said, we're going to hold on to that right to be the boss of our lives. We eat bread and we drink wine each week for many reasons. One of which is, it's just a way of declaring, I lay down my, that, this right to be the boss of my life. I want somebody else to be the boss. I want it to be God. He loves me. He knows best. He's committed to my good. And so I invite you to take this wine and this bread and to eat and to drink to remember what the Lord did for us on the cross, but also just as a way of declaring afresh, I lay down the right to be the boss of my life. I want God to be that person in my life. So let's eat and let's drink. If, while, we're, while the guys are playing, if any of you would like to have prayer, there'll be some ladies up at the front on my right and my left who would love to pray with you if you have something in your life right now or maybe a, a loved one has got something going on in their life and you'd like somebody to pray for you, I invite you to come and to, to ask them to pray for you. They would love to do that, okay? And they'll pray in faith for you, I promise, okay?